Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you're very welcome to a special edition of the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner on today, Monday, the 23rd of March. Now, as everybody is aware, we're in the middle of a major public health emergency. And one aspect to the current coronavirus crisis is that it is expected that there is going to be a surge in infections. It is expected that our hospital service is going to come under severe pressure. We hope against hope that that will not be the case and also that there's major emphasis being put on the fact that the government and society in general has implemented uh, social distancing, the whole um, culture effectively of washing our hands at every minute and of course the culture of testing as much as possible in order to find out where exactly the virus is. Notwithstanding those measures, a surge is expected. Again, We can only hope that that surge will not overwhelm the health service as it has done, for example, in Italy. In the event that the health service does come under severe pressure, it would appear that one of the most serious aspects of it will be what happens in the intensive care units for those, a small minority in the overall infections, yet quite possibly a considerable number of people who end up in intensive care and particularly those who end up requiring help in breathing. For them, the life-saving piece of machinery is a ventilator. These are used in ICUs, they're used elsewhere as well, basically in order to help people to stay breathing once their lungs get to a situation whereby that becomes very difficult. Now, therefore, the issue is, have we got enough ventilators to deal with this expected surge? We've already seen, for instance, in Italy, the really tragic scenario whereby the medical people there have to make decisions when patients come into them with the coronavirus to decide who is most likely to survive and then for that person to be um, effectively hooked up to a ventilator. Uh, That type of selection, you can only imagine, is an awful thing for any medic to have to go through. And I think everybody's hopes and and, and everybody's prayers are with the Italian people at the moment and what they're going through. But our efforts to avoid that, and it's not just unique to this country, we're seeing this also in a major way in the UK and the USA. These efforts are designed to ramp up the supply of ventilators. For example, just last Sunday, eight days ago, uh, in the UK, the British Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, said that engineering firms should consider switching some manufacturing to ramp up the production of ventilators. He he made a point, and I think it is a valid point, that this type of policy was normally reserved for times of war. Boris Johnson echoed those calls as well. Uh, He suggested that engineering firms in areas like construction, car making, even airplane engineering, should all make some effort to contribute towards attempting to ramp up the production of ventilators. 
One report in the British media suggested that Boris Johnson, when he met one of the ventilator manufacturing companies, raised the possibility of them sharing intellectual property. That indeed would be a step, but as I say, we're living in desperate times. Now, the situation is no less daunting here. There are about 1,030 ventilators in Irish public hospitals. Certainly at the start of this crisis there was, and another 200 in private hospitals. The HSE have, and they have been very open about it, they've let it be known that they've ordered up to 900 ventilators in an attempt to meet the expected demand. These are supposed to be coming in at the rate of about 100 a week. But even at that, if the worst case scenario does come to pass, there's a very serious possibility that there's still going to be a major shortage of ventilators. With that in mind, people in the engineering industries have, in one form or another, attempted to knock heads together and put together some, for example, prototype of a ventilator. And I was speaking to one individual who's very much involved in this, John Wallace, civil engineer originally, who's involved, he's a specialist engineering firm. And what he's attempting to do is to design and build a ventilator that in ordinary times would not meet the regulations. Now, the very good reason for that is that simply the regulatory process, understandably, is very complicated and protracted because we're dealing with machines that effectively can save lives. But we're living in extraordinary times and notwithstanding the best efforts of ventilator manufacturers, including, for example, two that uh, manufacture in this country for American firms, notwithstanding their best efforts, we're still going to be facing a shortage. So people in the engineering world here, as they have elsewhere, are knocking heads together and they're seeing if they can contribute anything to it to respond to this emergency. I spoke to John Wallace earlier and asked him how he came to be involved in attempting to design this, what he describes as a battlefield ventilator. Okay, John, John Wallace, um, would you give us your background, John? Um, I'm an engineer from Cork originally. My specialist area in the early days would have been environmental monitoring, a lot of work offshore. And out of that, we started doing specialist engineering uh, for a range of uh, businesses coming in from offshore to the process industry. And we work all over the world, usually on things that uh, other people can't do or won't do. They are what some might describe as oddball and demanding uh, quite amount of clever engineering. And how did you come to get involved in the current uh, public health crisis? Well, Mick, I think like everybody else, we saw things unfolding and not looking very good in China and starting to spread in, in January and early February. And we have a lot of contact with uh, some of the medical community and we could see that there was going to be problems if it hit us. And some of my guys, myself, we sat down and started looking at what we might do if it did go bad. And in uh, the last couple of weeks in particular, the ventilator crisis came up. We sat down and decided to see if we could do something. And that's where it started, really, uh, about 10 days ago or two weeks ago. And it really took off this week then. And the gist of what you're doing, John, as I understand it, is hoping to design a prototype ventilator for the current crisis. Yes, Mick. What we're calling it is a battlefield ventilator because it's not going to be as sophisticated as the ones that the medical devices companies produce around the world. 
And it is designed as a device that, look, if you run out of the other ones, this one will be in the corner and you can use it for a certain cohort of patients. Uh, so the idea is that if you need it, it's like a battlefield situation. You have no other devices available to you. That would be the normal run. Well, then this could be put on somebody and it should keep them going and help them recover. Please, God. So we're talking about a situation, John, um, of designing a ventilator, a very vital piece of medical equipment that would not, quite obviously, for time reasons more than anything, go through the normal regulatory uh, process in order to verify its safety in particular, I suppose. Uh, that, that is the case at the moment, although we have people looking at that and we're trying to design something as close as we can to regulatory compliance. But in a battlefield situation, you have to be flexible because you're talking about saving lives. Uh, so it is different. But part of the design, and I suppose some of the features of our design that we're looking at, is to try and make it as simple as possible. But we're going back looking at some of the older technology that might have been certified 25 years ago or 30 years ago and seeing how can we produce that quickly. So at least when we go through any sort of regulatory process that we have to, we can at least say that we're built on something that you're familiar with from the past. I mean, some of the things make just to say about the device that we're trying to do. One of the problems there is at the moment, uh, and there are several problems in achieving what we're trying to achieve with this project, but is that the supply chain around the world is deteriorating and rapidly. It's harder to get parts. It's harder to get things shipped, even if the parts exist. So that's another reason why we're trying to simplify it. And by going back to the older technology that was previously certified and looking at the parts out of that that we can use and then trying to come up with some innovative ideas based on what might be available to us. And now we have technology like 3D printing. And there's a huge group supporting what we're doing and supporting others who are doing similar things. But that, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get close to the regulation, but it's battlefield. And what kind of people have you been in contact with in the medical world? Oh, absolutely. A huge connection. I'm reluctant to start naming names, but it starts, I suppose, with the frontline practitioners. So we spent a lot of time in recent times in the hospitals working with really the top end of the anesthetists, who are the guys who drive this, but working with the med tech guys in those facilities that are responsible for getting things set up and working and servicing these machines. We've been working with some of the, the people in some of the universities who are medical device research groups. We've been offered support and are, are taking on support from some of the big medical device companies. I mean, the support we're getting, Mick, is as far away as we have people from the States, from around Europe, and more importantly, the fantastic groups that are all around this country. And we're actively working with people in Northern Ireland, Galway, Cork, Limerick, uh, all over, really. And what about government agencies, John? The support has been fantastic there as well, Mick, and it varies. We've been working with bunches of people that are horrendously under pressure in the HSC. And the HSC attitude on this is whatever it takes, you know, it's all hands to the pump and whatever it takes. And they are helping us opening doors. And it's not even about money at this stage. It's about getting access to the people that we have to get access to. Enterprise Ireland have been spectacular because they know who the experts are everywhere. And they really have, literally, night or day, on St. Patrick's Day, normal bank holiday, 
we had big teams of of the state agencies helping us to progress this forward. So even if I wanted to try, I couldn't find some way of criticizing the teams we've been working with. That's great because it, it is, I mean, as I say, obviously we are living in extraordinary times, but it is a fascinating scenario whereby what you're talking about is uh, building a model of life-saving equipment that is highly sophisticated, highly regulated, but doing so in a manner that has to be done very quickly and effectively bypass all of this regulation that is in place, presumably in most of the Western world. But it's something that's having to happen everywhere, Mick. And, you know, there's so much of it, you know, you know, it's common knowledge that the HSC are looking for buildings to maybe set up field hospitals. That, that's not within the normal regulation uh, that we operate in. You have to make do. I mean, we've had situations even where we've seen when in the hospitals where someone had ordered in equipment from Italy or from Germany, and all of a sudden it's not available because there's such a panic. And people are just having to, to improvise and innovate and come up with solutions to try and get ready. Now, what we're trying to do here, or what everybody is trying to do here, is prepare for it if it's bad, hope that it isn't going to be. But in fairness, everybody's pulling together to try and prepare for this. And yeah, it's extraordinary times. And it would be wonderful if all we had to do when it was all over was look back and say, God, there were extraordinary times, but it worked out quite well. Yeah. And back to the, the, the process again, John. Designing it is one thing. And then we're moving on. Presumably, you, you're going to attempt to get these machines built and built in a very short space of time. Yeah. As I said, Mick, one of the features of what we're trying to do is design them so that they can be built without depending on the normal supply chains. And we're doing that. We're making it simple, but we're also not, for example, we're trying to avoid situations where we need a sensor that's only available from Singapore because we don't know whether we can get stuff in from Singapore or from America or something like this. So when we design it simply, we are also hoping that we can get it manufactured and not hoping we will get it manufactured. There has been no end of support from the manufacturing people. Uh, around the country. And there's a team now already, even though we haven't got the first prototypes yet, there's a team already starting to work on looking at the people who will help us manufacture this. But one thing about this, Mick, is that this has been done by a group that is entirely not-for-profit. There's an awful lot of people giving their time on this, and there's a a huge amount of of support coming from the public on on this as well. Uh, And it's entirely not-for-profit. But not only that, One of the things that we're doing is once we start to have prototypes that the anaesthetists who will evaluate this say, okay, it doesn't have the rubber stamp on it yet, but we think it's good enough to put on the corner in case we need it. At that stage, we're going to make the designs. We're going to uh, rapidly develop the user manuals. We're at the moment talking with groups who are going to put together training videos on how this thing will work. And then there will be manufacturing teams. But we're making all that available to anybody in the world who wants it at no cost. And there will be no intellectual property or anything else. This is for everybody. Now, we expect that afterwards, if things settle down, if there's some regulatory issue, we may go back and tweak it and look at it and try and improve it so that this is still available if it happens next year or the year after. And we'll be maybe certified and maybe whatever. But for this year, it's, it's the way we're going to do it. 
Right, and one of, a few practical issues that arise as well, John, as, as you'll be well aware, medical negligence is a massive area. And if we were to take the type of scenarios that have arisen, for example, in Italy, which is what we're trying to avoid here, whereby, and obviously it's something that your um, innovation would contribute to, uh, avoid the scenario whereby doctors are forced to choose between people who should have access to a ventilator and who can't purely on the basis of availability. In that scenario, a couple of things arise, as I understand it. First of all, uh, the chances of somebody who's at that point of an illness of recovering are not great anyway. Uh, unfortunately, at that stage, a, a large percentage, I don't know whether it be a majority or not, of people may be expected to die anyway, unfortunately. And this is uh, just the, the last grasp effort to save their lives. What I'm getting at is in that scenario, it would be possible, if not probable, that even people who avail of such an innovative um, life-saving instrument would end up dying. Then you open up the possibility, unfortunately, particularly in our litigious society, of being sued. How do you think that could be addressed with your um, innovative instrument? Well, Mick, we, we know this is a risk. Uh, but for us who decided to get involved in this, our view was that the risk of somebody dying is much greater. And, uh, uh, you know, if somebody uh, causes problems afterwards because we've done our best and it didn't quite work out for them, we have to deal with it then. Now, one of the things that is being looked at, not just in Ireland, but in the US and in the UK and everything else, is because we're in a pandemic, we're in an emergency, we're in a battle or a war type situation, you know, the authorities are formally looking at relaxing some of this anyway. I mean, if you have a situation in the UK where Boris Johnson is asking Dyson to start building ventilators, uh, you know, that's outside it. If you look at the idea that the HSC is going to sports halls and saying we would like maybe to convert your sports hall into a field hospital if things go really bad. I mean, if you put that to somebody like Hikwa six months ago, they'd have run you out of the town. Uh, but we just have to do these things. It's too important. And while, it, while you want to prevent getting to the stage where you're in ICU or needing a ventilator, uh, and I, I will stress that, you know, that is what people want to do. But if you do get there, um, we just want to be sure that it's not because they can't find a machine to plug in the wall. And if there are consequences afterwards because of the way it was done, you know, we're, everybody's trying to save people's lives. So we just we just deal with it. It's what we have to do. But the, but the government and governments everywhere are relaxing it. I mean, I'll give you an example of where this was done with forethought in a different area. In, the, in relation to intellectual property, our understanding from some of the people who are offering us some advice is that, you know, we had a question of if we took a valve from a machine that was 25 years ago and it was still just within patent or something, is that an issue? And EU directives say that no, in the time of a pandemic or something like this, if you need something to save a life, you do it. And I think that there's a, you know, among many, many people at the government level, there is a realization that, look, we have to pull out all the stops and do what we have to do to save lives. And that's what it's about, Mike. You know, if somebody gets litigious afterwards, we deal with it. Yes, and I think, to be fair, there is another possibility. And there there has been a record in the country in particular instances of 
uh, legislation being passed in order to indemnify parties uh, for an eventuality, I suppose, in a completely different sphere, the most notorious being the uh, uh, the export of beef back in the late 80s. But there have been other, obviously, more altruistic, uh, you could say, uh, uh, occasions when this was invoked by a government and there would be no reason should something like your innovation get to the point of being used that that couldn't be done as well as as, as far as I can gather. John, the next thing that arises is timeline. When, for example, would you hope that your design would be ready to go into some form of production? Okay, I'll tell you what our ambition is. And we have a, a team that's growing very rapidly here, working around the clock. Everybody's working from early this morning uh, and they will work all through the weekend on this. Uh, what's happened this week, because this only really got going uh, and the team really started to come in together at the start of this week, a lot of it was about defining the problem, working in the hospitals, taking some of the old ventilators apart and whatever. And we're now at the stage of putting it together. We're hoping to have the bones of, of a... I don't even know I would call it quite a first prototype, but a first system on a bench, maybe in about a week or 10 days. At that stage, we will have a team of anesthetists are going to have a look at it. We're going to bring it to them. They're going to look at it and they're probably going to tell us that that bit and that bit are good, but you need to modify this bit. We then will go back and within a few days, we're hoping to be in a position to start looking at building, we'll call a first run and we don't know yet how many because it depends a little bit and hopefully it's a very small run because it, it didn't turn out to be as bad as we thought or that we feared um but we expect that even after we do that run while there's somebody else is manufacturing that run we're refining and tweaking again and then there may be a mark two a week or 10 days later but we're looking at having a machine on a bench uh, within a couple of weeks. And the actual manufacturer? When it comes to manufacturing, there is a team coming together uh, that will be working with Enterprise Ireland and they are looking at identifying those who might help us uh, it, when it comes to the manufacturer. And we don't know who they are or where they are yet. And I'm not involved other than as part of the overall management team, but I'm not talking directly to these people yet. Uh, we will if needs be. Um, but there is a team working with Enterprise Ireland starting to look at that and looking at things like the availability of materials and everything else so that we can hit the ground running. And as soon as a consultant team who are going to evaluate this, a, a medical consultant team, are going to evaluate this and say, OK, well, it's not the system we could have bought from Germany or from Galway. If they were available, this might save lives. We're hoping within a few days of them giving us an OK even if it is a reluctant okay, we will look at manufacture. It will be in a phased basis. We're not going to come along and build a huge quantity straight off. We'll build a smaller quantity, but literally, and that's to give us time to tweak and improve something if needs be. And then it will be the Mark II and Mark III. And that's the way it will go. And hopefully there won't be too many required, but that's the way we're planning at the moment. John, the other thing that arises is purely by chance, and I suppose attributable to our foreign direct investment policy in this country, about a dozen companies, as I understand it, world, worldwide manufacture ventilators, and at least two of them are based in this country. Have you been in touch with them at all? 
we've been in touch with some of the engineers uh, and we have offers of support from engineers who used to work there. But one of the one of the issues, Mick, is that they are so busy uh, driving the um, the production at the moment of their high end systems, which will save more lives than anything we might do that we haven't gone in and sought yet, but it has been offered. But like I said, Mick, at, at the moment, we are a few days into this, and we've had a number of the multinationals and some of the people involved with these companies saying, look, when we get to a stage that we need it, we will find support. So it's 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 not that we don't want to, it's, it's not that they don't want to, it's just not happened at this stage yet. Yes, and as you say, this, these are, are, I suppose, one way of putting it is desperate measures for desperate times. But there was an anaesthetist, uh, he was a professor, in, in fact, in South Wales, John Dingley was his name, and he developed something similar to this. I saw it there about 10 years ago. It didn't go beyond the initial phase. It was it was uh, reproduced in, in a medical journal at the time. But one of the things I noted about that, John, was that he suggested that this type of model could be used, for example, in areas of the developing world where they simply would not have access to the volume or sophistication of the medical equipment we use here. I suppose when all this dies down, there's a possibility that this type of design could be adapted for places that are going to have further emergencies, perhaps a long way from here. Mick, unfortunately, it's not going to be when it dies down. Uh, there's a situation in Africa at the moment, and one of our team is just back from Rwanda about uh, three weeks ago, and things were just starting there. Now, fortunately, they're a little bit behind us, uh, and that was the case in Rwanda. But, uh, you know, they are under severe pressure there. I mean, you see the situation in Europe, in the developed world, and this virus knows, you know, it doesn't know any borders, and it is coming there. And they are going to need uh, major help. And, you know, the scale of what they're going to need, uh, and it's not just machines, it's staff as well, but the scale of it is is sort of reflected in, in what you see in Europe in that they're looking for 8,000 ventilators in the UK. They're looking for 5,000 in Italy, where already Italy was uh, not too bad uh, by normal standards for what they had in equipment. They're looking for uh, lots of ventilators in France, in Spain, all over the developed world. So really, uh, uh, there is an, uh, a problem for the developing world, for sub-Saharan Africa, for parts of Asia and that. But the team, our team and other teams are, are designing these, not just for our local guys, but we know that there's going to be a requirement elsewhere. And that's what we're trying to respond to. And I suppose, John, finally, the, the, the message is that hopefully, despite the, the fantastic innovation that you and others are involved in, hopefully the, the best solution is that it doesn't come to the fact that people end up in ICU requiring ventilators. Absolutely, Mick. And that's the message. What you want to do is everything you possibly can to avoid getting there. And you have to be so vigilant with washing hands, with keeping your social distance, avoid groups. Just don't say, ah, I won't get it. And, and one of the things that you have to be careful of is, oh, I'm young and fit, and even if I get it, it won't be too bad. The problem is if you get it, you'll probably give it to three other people. And if some of those people are vulnerable or older or anything else, they'll end up in ICU. So everybody has to be responsible and it's not for a huge length of time when you think about what the consequences are 
wash your hands and wash them again and wash them again and keep your social space. John Wallace, good luck at your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, and the full story of um, John Wallace's efforts and those of the team around him, and I think it's fair to say John does emphasise that he's not a one-man band and it's very much a team effort, and also that they're not the only group of people from an engineering background who are trying to make this kind of contribution at the moment. You'll find all of that in today's uh, Irish Examiner. I've written a quite extensive piece on it. Just a couple of things to add to it. I mean, some people, for example, they might hear that and say, look, is this a bit wacky? Somebody from outside uh, the, the traditional industry of medical devices attempting something like this, notwithstanding the emergency. Well, let's put it in a bit of context. I mentioned somebody in that interview, Dr. John Dingley. He's an anaesthetist, a consultant anaesthetist who, who recently retired, was based in uh, Swansea in South Wales and also a professor in the University of Swansea. About 10 years ago, he came up with a prototype himself and a few of his colleagues for more or less the type of device we're talking about there. Now, I spoke to uh, John Dingley earlier. He wasn't able to come on the podcast for us because, quite frankly, he's absolutely snowed under as a result of his background. And he explained to me that uh, this prototype was one they produced. It was one specifically that they said at the time. And the design and, and the story of its production was produced in the medical journal back in 2010. But it was specifically for use when resources were limited, such as in developing countries or in remote locations or by the military, and also in the scenario of a medical emergency. And I think by any standards, a medical emergency is what we have now. John Dingley, they came up with this ventilator prototype. He said it would cost less than £200 to put it together. That was just 10 years ago. I can't have gone up by much inflation-wise since then. He did say that there was very little take-up from health authorities or anybody else at the time and he's a pretty innovative guy himself. He was involved in various other um, inventions to do with the medical device area. So he left it there. But um, right now he's in huge demand. He actually retired from his positions earlier this year and has now been called back basically in response to this emergency. But he did point out that this has been done. He said that, for example, yes, you have regulations, but he made that analogy of wartime himself. He said in times of war, if you look back at the First World War, the Second World War, what the UK went through then, the um, allowances that were made at the time, the necessity to do things, to go through shortcuts in order to save lives, notwithstanding in some instances it may not be the safest thing to do, but the overall picture, the overall aim to save as many lives as possible, he went into all of that and he didn't have much time for regulation. He said in scenarios where there was an emergency, uh, he's called back into action. He he pointed out actually that... um, a similar scenario arose in polio epidemics going back through the decades. There was particularly one in Copenhagen, 1952, where relays of medical students manually ventilated the lungs of patients under the guidance of an anaesthetist. Now, that is quite something when you think about it in terms of today's modern medicine. Also, in Beijing in 2003, trainees from unrelated specialities found themselves managing an intensive therapy unit 
filled with avian flu victims. You might remember the avian flu. That was another pandemic that thankfully didn't reach our shores. And again, the, even in, in that instance, for example, they were receiving clinical guidance from overseas experts through a mobile phone. So it just shows you the type of uh, lengths that people will go to and have to go to and are correct to go to, everybody I think would say, in, in times of an emergency whereby we have to bypass what might ordinarily be the best practice. There was also another case involving a Chinese man, a young man. He was a young, I think he was a mechanical engineer there about 10 years ago. Uh, he couldn't afford the treatment after a very serious accident and his family kept him alive for over five years at home with what was effectively a homemade ventilator. Now, as I say, these are very extreme measures, but we're living in extreme times and I think John Wallace in our interview there said it himself, hopefully we get to a scenario whereby none of these uh, new type of, of uh, machinery is required. Hopefully we get to that scenario. But if it does arise that we have a shortage of ventilators, that there's a possibility of saving lives, not the same possibility perhaps that there might be with a ventilator that is fully regulated and has gone through all the procedure, but something that for the times that are in it may help, well, then I think a lot of people would be in favour of it. Also, be interesting to see if this does come along, and we're talking about stuff that's literally changing by the day, whether the government would be in a position, for example, to enact emergency legislation in terms of indemnity, both for uh, doctors for hospitals of, and for manufacturers in the event of um, somebody, for example, using one of these machines yet not surviving, the, the, their next of kin or whomever, that again, in a normal scenario, there may well be a recourse to medical negligence, but whether uh, these very strange times require some emergency legislation, that is another aspect to it. You can read all about it in today's Examiner as well. Uh, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon on Sound. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you again soon, folks, and stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.